We've been looking for several weeks at this chapter, and uh, we saw the first week that the greatest of all things we can offer the Lord really is love. He talks about having great wisdom, great ability, great sacrifice, great personal service, and all of those things, he said, are nothing if we don't have love. The greatest of these, he says, is love. And so we saw that the first week, and then last week we kind of broke down how love looks and what uh, the different things that love does and it does not do, as we looked at uh, the uh, verses 4 through verse 6. And uh, so then we're going to continue and just kind of finish up tonight uh, with the rest of the, uh, the thoughts I wanted to make in this chapter here as we close out on this idea of love. Now, Guinness Book of Records lists the shortest sermon ever preached. It was given by a pastor in Michigan, J. Or John Albrecht, and he stood in the pulpit one Sunday morning in church, and he got up and he simply said, Love! And he sat down and the service was over. So I thought we'd do that tonight, just to get that. Ha! Not a chance. Nice try, though. I want you to get your money's worth, so we'll go until that clock changes, until the next, next hour. As we consider the final message and conclude uh, the third message with this little mini-series out of 1 Corinthians 13, I, I thought I'd begin with a riddle. Who is the greatest apostle of love in the New Testament? Greatest apostle of love. We talked about John today, John the Beloved. Uh, who who is beloved only because you know he said he was loved. So uh, he's we've called him that ever since. Was it him or was it Paul? He wrote First Corinthians thirteen. He surely knew some things about love. But the truth, the answer to that is Peter was the greatest apostle of love. He asked Jesus to pray for his mother-in-law, and there is no greater love than that. That was a joke. Okay, we're not to the truth part yet, but we're getting there now. Love is a crucial part of the local church. You've never heard anyone, I've never heard anyone say that I left that church because they just love me too much. <laughs> love is a, a, de a defining factor of the local church. By this shall all men know you, my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is what defines us, what ought to define us. And uh, we ought to be so busy loving God, so busy loving others and loving your life, what God's blessed you with, that you have no time for regret, worry, fear, or uh, all the other things that can cause problems in the church. So how does God teach us to love? One way is putting, <laughs> this is interesting, I was thinking about this this week, uh, God teaches us to love by putting some unlovely people around us once in a while. Uh, sometimes, uh, there, have you ever, have you ever felt like, there's somebody in your life that God put there specifically to teach you patience, teach you how to love. Like, their only existence is to drive me crazy. I mean, that's sometimes how we feel about certain... And there's people around us that are really, if we're honest, are a little unlovely. Sometimes we're unlovely, too. And so God teaches us how to love. Tonight, I want to talk about this aspect, that love never gives up. Love never gives up. That's our subject tonight as we look at verse number 7. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. 
Love never gives up. Father, I help you, uh, ask you to help us tonight, Lord. I pray that you would use this to increase our love for one another and for a lost world around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, doeth all things. The word paz is uh, the original word for all things is very comprehensive and it's repeated four times in this verse, so we do not miss the point. It is translated whosoever in the, in the New Testament, uh, translated to the word whosoever 31 times. And uh, it's all-inclusive, by the way. When the Bible says that Jesus died, that whosoever believeth in him, that's all-inclusive. That means anyone who calls on Christ can be saved. We do not hold to the doctrine that God chose some people to go to hell and some people to go to heaven. The Bible says whosoever, and yeah, it does talk about the elect. I believe the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non-elect are the whosoever won'ts. Okay, that's uh, it's a the, it's an offered to all man. God is not willing that any should perish, and so they this these four aspects of love teach us that no matter how desperate our circumstances may be, love never gives up. Let's go through the four. The Bible lists the four points, so let's look at each one of them. First of all, we see bears all things. Beareth all things. This is godly silence, if you will. The word translated beareth is stego. It means to put a roof over. That's literally what that word means, to put a roof over. It could also be uh, rendered uh, covers all things or protects all things. This is what love looks like. It finds a way to cover and protect it finds ways to forgive and forget. Uh, Jesus did this. He decided, uh, or he he desired to put a cover over those that were crucifying him. Remember what he said: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." That's the a supreme example of love, or to put a roof over what they were doing. He asked his father to forgive them. First Peter four eight says that love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not cleanse sin. But it covers sin in that we do not go about around talking to other people about other people's sins. We shouldn't uh, be talking, I shouldn't be talking to uh, Howard about Jeremy's sin and Jeremy about Wes's sin, and nor should you be doing that about anybody else. We, we don't uh, go around and gossip about people's sin. That's the idea of love covering that sin. This does not mean that we tolerate or cover evil. Uh, does not mean that at all. It means that love does not exaggerate the size of the sin. It does not proclaim it for all to hear. It will not unearth past sins in someone's life to belittle them or to shame them or to discourage them. Love protects other people. It does not broadcast bad news. It goes the second mile to protect another person's reputation. That's the idea of love covering or this idea of putting a roof over. There are two very relevant applications to this. First of all, love does not nitpick. It doesn't point out every flaw of the ones that you love. If you are married and you point out every flaw and mistake that your husband or wife has made, you wouldn't have time for anything else, would you? I mean, if we just became nitpickers. And this applies to every human relationship, not just marriage. Uh, focus on the negative, and that's soon all you'll see. That's all you'll see is the negative if you just focus on that. Secondly, love does not criticize in public. I think that this is Paul's primary me meaning here, that 
Love does not air dirty laundry for all the world to see. I absolutely recoil inside when I hear a a husband humiliating his wife or a wife humiliating her husband in front of other people, making snide remarks about each other. That just grates me to my core. Because that's, uh, first of all, that's just a horrible thing to do, but this is the opposite of beareth all things, or putting a roof over it. We don't need to air uh, other people's sin. If they do that in public, by the way, if you do that in public, what would you do in private? I would sure think it's much worse. One person said this, Many times in my life I was sorry I opened my mouth, but it is very rare that I was sorry that I kept silent. When it comes to needless criticism of other people, there's excellent advice found in the Bible in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. It's just telling us in a nice way, shut your mouth, is what it's saying in Proverbs there, in a very nice way. There's times we shouldn't speak. Uh, one prayer, uh, one person had this prayer, Dear Lord, please keep your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. How many of us could say that prayer? Uh, I think every one of us needs that at times. One of my favorite Albert Einstein quotes, maybe it's because this one I can understand, like most of his I can't, but here, here's what he said. If A, the letter A, is success in life, then A equals Z plus Y plus, I'm sorry, A equals X plus Y plus Z. If A is success, then A equals X plus Y plus Z. Work is X, Y is play, and Z is keeping your mouth shut. So work, play, and keep your mouth shut. That's what Albert Einstein said was the formula for success. A lot of wisdom in that. The second thing that verse 7 says, it believeth all things. This is godly trust. The first one was godly silence. The second one is godly trust. To believe all things means that love believes the best possible for as long as it possibly can, the best about others. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. It sees and expects the best in people, not the worst in people. Love prefers to be generous rather than to be critical. And often that is all that some poor soul needs is someone to just trust and put some confidence in him. I'm not suggesting at all that we are to be naive or gullible in love. But love, ha I mean, obviously love has to be guarded by wisdom. It has to be guarded by discernment. True love is not going to be taken in by a con artist because we're just so kind and nice. But at some, at some point, love will say enough is enough. But I'm kind of like, I, I'm talking, it's kind of like a court of law where the accused is innocent until proven guilty. We're, we're familiar with that concept. And love says, I'm willing to wait until the evidence comes in I choose to give the benefit of the doubt. That is the idea behind believes all things. Now, some people treat others opposite of that. They basically treat others, you're guilty until you, you can prove otherwise. And that's not true love. That's not a good way to treat other people. Love doesn't do that. I've found, obviously this isn't a rule that applies to everybody, but I've found that many times people tend to become what we believe them to be. They live up or down to your expectations. If you treat a man as trustworthy, usually he'll strive himself uh, to show himself worthy of your trust. 
if you treat your wife as if she's the most beautiful woman in the world, she will be. And uh, in other words, uh, on the other hand, if you're a jealous spouse, you're constantly critical, uh, you tend to, or often they tend to become what you see. You focus on the negative and soon that's all you'll see, is my point. Now think about what Jesus did. To a vacillating Simon Peter, I mean, this guy was all over the map. He had, he was the polar opposite of steadfast. And Jesus said, you're a rock, Peter. You're a stone. On this stone, I'm going to, on this rock, talking about himself, I'm going to build my church, but you're a stone. He called him Peter. To a prostitute, he said, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. To a woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Uh, the simple power of believing the best or worst about people. You believe the best about them, often it'll rise them up. You believe the worst about them, often it'll put them down. Love believes the best it can as long as it can be believed. Love believeth all things, the Bible says. This is godly trust. What a difference it makes when we believe in those around us. What a difference it makes when husbands and wives, parents and children, believe in each other. What a difference when church members truly think the best of each other. I mean, that would make a really great environment for fellowship and growth in the Lord instead of being critical of one another that we believe the best about one another. So you hear something negative and in your mind, I'm going to hold out before I make a judgment here. I'm going to get behind, get some more evidence before uh, I'm going to just automatically turn against this person because why? Love believeth all things. Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Again, what kind of environment would we have if each one of us esteemed every other person as better than themselves? It would be a different type of environment than many people are used to. All right, let's move to the next one. Number three, hopeth all things. Hopes all things. This is godly optimism. Hopeth all things. The third phrase. It, this is a step beyond believing. Uh, the meaning, I think, is something like this. There's times in your life that you're going to face situations so difficult it seems impossible. And you would gladly give the benefit of the doubt, but there seems to be none to give. You just don't have anything left to believe in. You're searching for that silver lining, but there's so many clouds in life, there doesn't seem to be any silver lining. Maybe facing a situation like that right now. Maybe there's a circumstance that you're going through that you have no easy answers for. It could be a family situation or a health situation or financial. Whatever it is, that word impossible applies to your situation. You've wept, you've prayed, you've done everything you can do, and it just doesn't seem to help. What does love do in a situation like that when you can't believe anymore? You hope. Again, hope is a step beyond belief. Listen to what C.K. Chesterton said here. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, then hope is merely flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope becomes a strength. Well, the point he's making, if it's if you see the answers clearly, it's not hope anymore. Now it's, it's evident, but uh, real hope comes when things seem hopeless. Let, let me set this scene. We're familiar with the Last Supper. 
the disciples, some of them are arguing about who's greatest. They've eaten. Uh, Jesus has just told them that they're, uh, that, that whoever dips in the sop with him, somebody's going to betray him. But when he washes the feet uh, of these disciples, we, under, we remember that story. According to John 13, Judas is in the room with them. And this is an amazing thing to me, because I always try to picture how this went down. We know what happened when he got to Peter. Peter's like, uh-uh, you're not touching me. Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, then I'll have, you'll have no part of me, or I'm paraphrasing. And then Peter says, wash my whole body then, you know. Uh, he was that man of extremes. And, uh, but I don't see any indication in Scripture that Jesus skipped Judas. He washed Judas' feet. Can you imagine that? This is after he's been called out, after he knows what Judas is going to do, and Judas knows that Jesus knows what he's going to do. And yet, uh, he got down and he washed his feet. How in the wide world could he do that? Because he loved Judas with a godly love. He knew that Judas would soon betray him, but that's how real, true, agape love works. It hopeth all things. It hopes for the best. No matter how impossible the situation, love always hopes. It looks to the future. It doesn't look to the past. And I thank God that, I mean, I think you could preach a whole message on the fact that Jesus washed Judas' feet and all that that means for us. He doesn't throw us away. I mean, Judas threw himself away, committed suicide, but Jesus didn't throw him away. There's never a point where Judas couldn't have gotten right with God. That's incredible to me. Love sees the future. It always hopes. Let's apply this to our relationships. We're often told that we have to accept people as they are. Now, that's true, and that's also not true. Uh, sometimes, this is the way you are, no matter what I do, you're never going to change. That's not acceptance, that's fatalism. That's, uh, there's no hope in that. But biblical acceptance is based on hope in God. Uh, by the way, this is how we accept everyone who walks in through those doors back. It doesn't matter who you are or what lifestyle you're caught up in or your sin or whatever. We, we are accepting of people who come through those doors because God can change them and God can forgive them. So this is the idea of biblical acceptance. I accept you the way that you are right now, but I don't believe you have to stay that way. You can change. God can uh, change your life. Hope looks to the future. Oscar Wilde said the difference between a saint and a sinner is that the saint has a past and the sinner has a future. The saint has a past that keeps him from getting puffed up in pride. The sinner has a future to keep him from giving up in despair. Love entertains great expectations. This ought to be our hope in our love. Psalm 42, 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him. We ought to have that hope in our Christian life. And we get to number four, the last one. Endureth all things. Love endures all things. This is godly perseverance. It endures all things. The word for endure is hupameno. It means to remain under the load, literally. Love is strong. Love remains under the load no matter what is piled on top. It bears up courageously no matter what the suffering is. 
This is the love that will not let us off, will not let us go, and will not let us down. The word endureth uh, here is also a military term. The idea uh, it, it pictures an army surrounded and it's being attacked and it's slowly being overcome. One by one, comrades are falling at your side and through the din of battle comes one final command, stand your guard and if necessary, die well. That's the idea of endureth. It's the idea of love. Love does not give up. It hangs on and it perseveres. It never gives up on anyone. Godly love doesn't stop loving even in the face of rejection. Oh, friends, what could we do if we had a good dose of godly love in our hearts for other people? But we're so quick to vet people, whether they're worthy of our love, whether they're worthy of, of us investing in them. And man, Jesus didn't do that. He just invested in everyone who would allow him to. Now, verse 7 is sort of a progression here. First, love covers the sins of the one it loves. Again, we're not talking about being a, an accomplice to evil. We're talking about not um, broadcasting it, not gossiping about it. Okay, So first, it covers the sin of the one it loves. Second, loves, love believes the best as, that it can as long as that is possible. Third, love hopes when it cannot believe anymore. And fourth, love endures even when hope is gone. Love doesn't quit. Love hangs on. It doesn't give up and walk away. Boy, God certainly didn't, did he? Now, again, this doesn't mean that love is passive in the face of bad treatment. It doesn't mean that you have to be abused and put up with those type of things. I'm just saying love looks beyond the present to what might be in the future. It takes action uh, to shake up an impossible situation. But here's where most people pull back. This type of love carries with it a risk. Uh, true godly love, uh, there's a risk involved. Because this type of love does not mean that everything will always work out the way you like. That only happens in movies, not in real life. Sometimes love is crushed. Sometimes it is rejected. Loving others is a risky business. It really is. It's not for wimps. It's not for the weak of heart. Loving others, the more people you love uh, and show God's love to, the more there is a risk of getting hurt in the process. That's why so many people, I can tell you, and I'm not trying to whine or anything, but ministry, that, that makes ministry very tough because you love people and you invest in people and a lot of times you get stabbed in the back. A lot of times you get, uh, you, you, uh, people turn on you and it gets very ugly and it becomes very unpleasant. And I got to tell you, a lot of people walk away from it. They don't want to have anything to do with it anymore because love is risky. By the way, that's what happened to Jesus. He loved more purely than any human being has ever loved. And he was crucified. He was killed ultimately. This is why so few people do it. There is a risk involved. What if they abuse the love that you give them? For the Christian, there's only one possible answer. We love others the way that God loved us. Uh, we certainly didn't deserve it. And again, this is hard for us because we look at ourselves as super, uber deserving. I mean, we are, uh, God is so lucky to have me. And you, of course. Other people are, but for us, he's lucky to have us. And it's easy for us to look at ourselves, but we didn't deserve God's love. I certainly didn't, still don't. Let me make a statement here. The losers in life 
are not those whose love is rejected. They, now, those people know the deep pain of loving in a fallen world. In fact, they understand a little bit of God's heart, who sent His only begotten Son uh, to the world, knowing that they would reject Him, knowing He would die the way He did. The real losers in life are not those whose love is rejected. The real losers in life are those who refuse to love at all. It's safe. Oh, I don't want to be hurt. But you won't make an impact either. Not without loving others. C.S. Lewis to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But it, that idea is really a lot of, and even Christians do that very thing. They lock it up. They won't take a risk of investing in others and loving others and giving their heart. But love stands its ground in the face of the worst things that man can dish out. In the words of Carrie, Corey Ten Boom, when she was asked how she can endure a Nazi prison camp without having bitterness in her heart, and she said this, and I quote, there is no pit, pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. It's hard for us to imagine what she went through and was able to keep that attitude, but that's the key to this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, this is about the love of God, not the love of man. Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God should be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to pour out God's love into my heart. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life, then you'll be able to pour out the love of God on others. Because what God gives us, we ought to give to others as well. God's love for us, is absolute, though it's undeserved, and yet He gives it to us freely. We ought to give it to others as well. We're to be a river, not a reservoir. Amen? We don't just hoard up that forgiveness and grace that God gives us. We extend it to others. Spurgeon said about this text we're reading here, Behold the cross. See the patient sufferer in that multitude. They thrust out the tongue. They sneer. They jest. They blaspheme. And there he hangs, triumphant in his patience, conquering the world and death and hell by enduring all things. O oh, love, thou didst never sit on a throne so imperial as the cross. He showed us what real true love is. He, he sacrificed everything. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, to love your friends isn't all that's asked of Christians. It gets worse. He says we're to love our enemies as well. Love your family, love your friends, and then he said love your enemies. He said even the heathen love their friends. What good is it to be kind to those who are kind to you? Everybody's kind to those that are kind to them. But you, he said, be different. You love your enemies. You do good to those that despitefully use you. You do uh, love those that hate you. 
It's the most natural thing in the world to love those that are kind to you. It's supernatural to love your enemies. And it's not simply difficult to live this way. It's impossible. That's what God demands from us and the Holy Spirit supplies within us so that we have a reservoir from which to pay it out. Our deepest needs in life are not intellectual or emotional. Our deepest needs are spiritual. And i got to imagine that if you're anything like me, we look at this picture of love that Jesus gives and, and we look at the things that are demanded of us and we understand we're woefully inept to love the way that we should. It's easy to love. Look, I've got no problem loving everyone in this room tonight because you all are pleasant. We are the same belief and we come to the same place, we worship together. But there are people in our lives, and you have them too. They're not lovely. They're not easy to love. And yet we're to love them anyway. We need to yield ourselves completely to the Holy Spirit. Meinster Eckhart said this, Some people want to love God and others the same way they love a cow. You love the cow for the milk and the cheese that you get and for the own, your own profit that you get from her. And that's like those who love God for the sake of outward riches or some kind of success or loving others only for personal benefit. But that's not loving correctly. That's not God's kind of love. God's love is not like loving a cow who you only love for what you get in return. He loved us while we were yet sinners. When we were at enmity with Him, He loved us and died for us. God's love is selfless. It is the greatest trait that we can have. He even says here, the greatest of these is love, charity. It does not give up. And I'm asking, I'm challenging you to practice this in your life today. Ask God specifically how you can, in the next few days throughout this week, to put someone in your path. Uh, maybe you're thinking of someone right now. If I see them, I've got to love them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just like God loved you when you were undeserving. And it's difficult. But we need to ask God to help us show His love to people even when they don't deserve it. Have you met somebody in the last week that doesn't deserve it? I have. I've met a couple people. And uh, they deserve a knuckle sandwich is what I felt like. But can we give them God's love? Uh, what a difference it would make if we offered unvetted, unmerited love to others like God does for us. It'd make a difference. It'd make an impact, wouldn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this.